Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 116, and today we'll be chatting with Mada Segete, the co-founder of Branch, the deep-looking tool for app growth and attribution. Mada is originally from Romania and grew up under communism. She then moved to the U.S. for university. While taking some business classes, one professor helped her realize that the next wave of companies would be started by people like her. After starting her first company and learning lots of valuable lessons firsthand, Mada and her co-founders started Branch after realizing that their biggest challenge was user acquisition and referral tracking. Branch has now raised over $53 million in funding and has customers like Pinterest, Mint, Foursquare, BuzzFeed, and many more. Mada joins us to share her story, how she got into tech and startups, what motivated her to start Branch, how they did things that didn't scale to get their first customers, how she sees the future of mobile evolving, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hack to start drop us an email at hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And, uh, you know, we, we'd lo- we're really, really looking forward to kind of hearing about what you're building at uh, at Branch. But maybe before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study? Sure. I am originally from Romania. Uh, I used to be a math nerd. So I used to go to like math Olympiads. And that was pretty much my middle school and high school. Awesome. Uh, I actually moved to U.S because I got a, a scholarship from Cornell. So I moved to upstate New York with two big suitcases. And uh, I studied computer engineering and I minor in computer science. And then I actually, two masters, uh, one in engineering management that got right out of my undergrad. Uh, and I, then I also have an MBA and they are both from Stanford. Wow, you're four times more educated than Tyler and I put together. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm very educated. Part Me- of it was circumstance part of it you know it, it was part of my journey I don't think like it, I think it depends on who you are and everyone has a different entrepreneurial journey but this was mine yeah no absolutely that's so cool I wish I was smart enough to do that kind of stuff but uh, yeah so you know maybe, maybe <laughs> just maybe you can tell us a little bit about how your passion for tech and entrepreneurship really came about you know was it through all that education or, or where, where did that drive kind of come from yeah I think it did actually come from that so my passion for technology actually comes from, starts all the way from undergrad uh, when I was like kind of passionate about math. And then in my, in my, um, and I started, I guess I, I did computer architecture. So I became like really interested in processor design and how computers work. Uh, and every job I held after that has been in technology. Uh, my passion for, I think, entrepreneurship specifically started at Stanford, actually, when I did my engineering master's. And I was part, the design school was just being started and it was just in a trailer and I was part of the first design school class, uh, which was very exciting. But we got to work uh, with startups and help them grow. And I remember just one of my professors once after a class, he said, you know, if you guys don't build 
the next companies in the world, who do you think will? For me, like I had never, I, I grew up in communism. I Even in undergrad, like my dream was to work for a large company. And I never ever thought that I could actually start a company. And then, and it was like that moment when someone that I really admired, in a way, told me that, you know, I could do it. That in a way changed my life, I think, because I started believing that one day I could start a company. And I think that's when kind of this dream started. And I started kind of forging my path to a point where I would start a company. Wow, that's a really crazy story. And it's so cool to hear about how you got to realize that you could build your own company. So touching on that a bit more, what were some of the first jobs or experiences with startups? Sure. I remember one specific project we were taking. It was this class. It was called Creating Infectious Behavior. And we were working with Firefox, Mozilla Firefox at the time. And we were supposed to come up with an interesting way to drive virality for uh, for Firefox. And we built our own toolbar and we did all this like kind of crazy things. We found out that there was a delay in them building their own toolbar because there was something, uh, I think, for eBay, specifically for eBay users. And we heard that there were like, there were delays there because of the relationship between Firefox and eBay. And we just built one on our own and like, wrote this like kind of explosive article about how they've been like waiting for so long. Uh, and it actually did amazing. Like we got a lot of adoption. Someone actually bought a car through our tour bar. And it was just like an interesting way that we work with a small company, but we built like our own little product to help them grow. And our product kind of took a life on its own. So we had to go and meet with their lawyers. And because like, I don't think they ever expected that we would build a product that would do so well. And it was just like a very uh, amazing experience of like building something in a few weeks that could really make an impact. And it was very rewarding. And I think that's when I knew that I wanted to continue doing that. So I had already accepted the job to be a management consultant. And I did do that for a year. But I... I was very unhappy. I, I wanted to go back to that feeling I had when I was building things that impacted people and I could change things and it would change the way people interacted with them. And as a consultant, you mostly advise. So I left and joined a startup in San Francisco called Yola. It was a website builder. So I started doing um, in business development and then I started doing products. So I was a product manager for them for a few years. That's awesome. It sounds like uh, some really cool projects that you had the opportunity to work on it. And I really like how you, you know, you focused on some development efforts for one, some BD and even some product direction. But I've done a lot of, yeah, I've like done it all. Yeah. So based on your school and, you know, the early days of startups that you've had the chance to work with, what have been some of the biggest lessons you learned early on in your career? Iteration is really important. You can't just think you're going to, you're going to do something that's going to be perfect. Like designing and planning when you have a startup, it's not like that important. It's a lot more important to do something that's like functioning that you can put in the market and you can get feedback from your early customers. The other really important lesson that I learned is that you should listen to others. And I think this is something that I talk about when I do talks to early entrepreneurs Everyone tells you, you should just, you know, like believe in your dream and your idea and just kind of go for it and look at Airbnb. They got so many no's, but then they succeeded. And I actually, I think there is some truth in that, but it's very rare. And I actually believe in the opposite. I, I believe that when, when a lot of people tell you that you don't have, that your idea won't work, or if you see market data that your idea won't work, you should consider that maybe you don't have the right idea. And maybe 
you need to tweak things. So before branch, my co-founders and I worked on a few different ideas. So first we built Fitbit for dogs, which, you know, we would go to dog parks and talk to dog owners and we would say, hey, you know, we're building this Fitbit for dogs. And they would be like, oh, I don't really need it for my dog. Or we would talk to people who'd be like, oh, 10 different companies applied to YC this year with the same idea. And then, and there's something about that when, when you hear like a lot of no's, there's usually something there. I'm not saying there's not no exception to the rules, but I think too often entrepreneurs just kind of believe blindly in that idea and don't listen to, you know, only listen to the yeses and kind of ignore the no's. And I think it's important to listen to the no's and incorporate them and change. Obviously, don't listen to every no if one person tells you that. But, but if you hear the same feedback over and over again from customers, investors, like listen to it and try to incorporate that. So, you know, we, we then built an app, portable printing app, and everyone was telling us printing was going to be really hard. And it was. Uh, printing is a really tough business to be in. So we ended up leaving that. And we kind of took all our learnings and branch was the culmination of us listening to ourselves and our needs and the needs of our customers and the things that our investors and investors that we talked to told us. So, yeah, I think that's my that's my advice. Listen to both the positive and the negative feedback that you get and try to actually incorporate it. Yeah, no, those are some great pieces of advice. And we'll definitely touch on Branch a little bit later on the episode. But if we can just talk about, you know, your first startup that you launched in 2013 called Kidron Prince. So can you talk us, to us a little bit more about what motivated you to launch this startup? Uh, I mean, we had taken this class called, I'll be like super honest. <laughs> So we had taken this class called Launchpad and we had come together as a team, uh, two of my co-founders and me, and we had decided that we were going to spend the summer working on an idea and that this Fitbit for dogs was not going to be the right idea. So we actually sat in a room. A lot of people say you should start a company because you see a need and because you that the company needs to be born. That's not how we started it. We we got into a room and we knew we wanted to build a company and we had no idea what it was going to be. And we had the summer to do it. And we sat in that room for like a day and we came up with ideas and frameworks and like went through all the different ideas. And this was one of the ideas that Alex had, uh, our CEO. And the idea was we take photos and we consume photos from our phone, but our parents and grandparents are still like print is still the main medium for them. So if we could kind of build an app that bridges the generation gap and we could take the photos that we took with our phone and send them in a few simple steps for $5 and then our grandma would get like a photo book of all the photos that we took then we would like bridge this gap between phone and print and between our generation and, and our grandparents. So that's kind of how we started. We spent the summer building an iOS and Android app. Alex built it. I was the designer, so I designed it. Uh, and then Mike, our third co-founder, who was coming from 3M and he was our operation guys guy, who worked on like finding a printer, think of how this book were going to look like, taking care of shipping, and all that. And then, yeah, I think in like, we spent maybe like two and a half months building it. And then we launched it. We got featured in Best New App because there weren't that many photo book printing apps at the time. And we were doing something a little bit different. Like our books were very cheap and we had a different format. So it's like for $5, you could get this like book, $5 including shipping. You can get this like little booklet to your like family. That's kind of how it started. So it wasn't, 
it was something that like we kind of felt the need like i i we would build books for my parents and send them to romania and alex's grandma loved like the photo books that he would make for her so part of it was definitely a little bit of a need but more of it was we just wanted to build something and this seemed like a cool idea that's really cool. I'm a huge fan of the photo books and think that, you know, your photos do get lost in your phone and, and, and on Facebook and Instagram and, and your hard drive and actually going out and printing these things and showcasing them to your friends and family is, is, a, is a really cool idea. So what was some of the challenges involved growing this type of business? I mean, there's two big challenges. Building an app is easy. Growing an app is incredibly hard. So more and more apps. And if you look at like the, the trend, by the end of the year, it's going to be like 25,000 new apps that are going to be launched in the app store. And then if you think about how people discover, they still just go to the app store and they only see like every week they see, I don't know, 10 feature new apps. And even though we were featured, once that feature was over, it was very hard for people to discover us. Traditional marketing doesn't work that well. So most, you know, like search doesn't work for app content and it doesn't work for apps. And Google is working on that, but they're not necessarily doing a good job. Even ads, ads for apps are usually just ads for apps. But how about all the content in those apps? Um, and I think at Branch, we're trying to change that. But honestly, that was a big problem. We, we raised some seed money at the time and we spent it all on acquiring users. And it was actually incredibly hard to get them, to get them to engage, to get them to come back. Although we, we had a cool tool and we had some pretty good conversions. I think our conversion from someone who came from a paid ad to them actually purchasing a book was 10%, which is pretty good conversion. The other problem was printing is a really rough business. So there's a lot of competition and you are at the end of the day competing with the snap fishes of the world. And there were a lot of other photo book providers in the space and there were a lot of new photo book apps and the margins are very small especially if you don't have in-house printers so a lot of the big guys have in-house printers so that's how they're able to sustain the margins but for us we were working with a third-party printer and if you added shipping to that and operations were really hard because i think like we had the two percent miss rate on packages being delivered because we weren't charging a lot for shipping and we're going with a, with a cheaper shipping solution to keep the books and the shipping cheap. And uh, USPS actually loses a lot of these packages and people were complaining. And when it's, you know, your photos, the photos of loved ones, and they don't get to the right people in time, when you build a, you know, when you make something for a friend's birthday and they don't get them in time, then that, that, that's a big problem. So operations were hard, margins were small, and it was really hard and expensive to acquire users. So after we tried for a while and we ran all the models, we saw that we could probably become sustainable small business, but we would never be, you know, a really large scalable business. And I don't think when we started building something, we wanted to build like a company, a large company that could change things. And this felt like it wasn't, first of all, it was never going to be a large company and it was never going to change the industry. And the adoption was like really challenging. So those are our main challenges. And that's kind of why we stopped doing it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Those are some major challenges. And I, one little thing, I guess, that you hinted at, that's kind of, you know, the the, the origin of, of Branch, which you're now working on. So you talked a little bit about acquiring users and how difficult that was and how search doesn't really 
pick up on content or search as it is today doesn't really pick up on content inside of apps. So can you tell us right. a little bit more about how those two themes play into branch and what really motivated you to, to help start that company out of, you know, the, the book business? Yeah. So interestingly enough, branch was the only idea that we had that actually came from a real need. So we didn't, we didn't sit in a room and say, we're going to build something. What's the best idea? It was very much like something we felt acutely as, as developers. And uh, we, we, there were a few things that I was trying to do. So I was doing marketing for Kindred and I, I wanted to build a referral program. And I wanted, if I invite someone and they open the app and installed from my link, for them to get a free book and then the person who sent them the link to also get a free book. And we realized there was no way to understand when someone opened a, a, an app for the first time, what link they came from, what user they came from. And we were like, wow, this is crazy. There must be a way. I kept thinking that there must be a way. I remember like being in Stack Overflow and Alex, basically our CEO who is then building the app, was like, no, there is no way. And I was like, no, you just haven't found it. But there was no way. And I remember like calling PMs at Facebook and I was like, hey, like I'm running these campaigns and I want you to like send me the campaign ID when the app opens for the first time. And they were like, oh, there's no way to do that. Sorry. I was like, wait, what? I mean, that makes no sense. I want to customize the install experience if they're like coming from my mom campaign or if they're coming from like teenager in long distance relationship campaign because they behave very differently. And they're like, no, no, there's no way to do that. So I was like, wow, this is crazy. There's no way for me when I get the user to actually give them a different experience depending on where they came from, whether they came from a referral or because someone shared a book with them. That's actually how Branch came along. We're trying to solve this problem. We're trying to figure out a workaround. And by us trying to ask people that worked at bigger apps and bigger companies and realizing that they had the same problem we had, we were like, wow, this is like, we should, we should build this. As we started understanding that people wanted this, it seemed like a much bigger opportunity and we ended up selling Kindred. We found a buyer and just decided to focus fully on, on branch. That's kind of how it all started. It was about two years ago. It's awesome. And how did you guys approach building like the first version of the product and getting your first customers? Like you, you said that you guys were kind of gauging that, that, that interest. What was that process like? It was the people that we called. So I remember Alex and I were sitting in his kitchen on a Sunday thinking through this, because I think everyone else was out of town. We were still just the four founders at the time. And I remember like we started calling people and asking them to like really understand if they had the same problem. And I would call this guy who used to be at Zynga and then went to Gogobot. And we called this other guys who worked for an art app called Vango. And they all had this problem. And they said, you know, if you build it, we'll probably use it. So our first customer was actually the art app, Vango. And Alex actually went to their office and he built their whole referral program using our the links that we had just built. So not only did he build our link, our link service, he actually like built it into their app. He like worked from their office for three days and built their whole referral program. That's awesome. Uh, or I mean he worked with their iOS developer. He didn't build like the front end, but like the back end infrastructure. And then this guy, Gogobot, was actually our first really large app. I think he was a friend and he introduced us to their CTO and the CTO liked us and he just gave us a shot. And, you know, they still use us today. And But they were our first like bigger app. And once you have a few, like this is a huge need in the market. And the biggest problem we had in the early days was that like 
putting an SDK in, in your app, and we were not just like a regular SDK, we were like an SDK that's in the critical path of the app. So when an app opens, the first thing they do is they, is they ask us, where did this person come from? And that means that if there's something wrong, like we can delay the app, we can make the app crash, put that work properly. So people in the early days were just like distrustful of like an SDK that wasn't in any apps. But once we were live and we could show them live examples, like from there, it became like much easier to convince people to use us. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I love the I love the customer service involved in helping those those first few get started and really implementing. We still do it. I that, mean, I remember when Pinterest went live with us. I think we had like our engineer at their office like a lot. Same with Airbnb. Same with same with like a lot of these larger apps. We still like go to their offices and work with their engineers. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. So given some of the customers that you guys have had and sort of, you know, your expertise in the deep linking space, what role, you know, have you seen deep linking and sort of data play in the acquisition of customers or or users, especially at a larger scale? Or, you know, what are some of the most common misconceptions about acquiring users once you get to a certain point? I think one of the interesting things that I discovered was around referrals. And everyone says that, you know, referrals are so important. And if you do referrals right, your company would grow and look at like Dropbox and Uber and how their referrals help them grow so much. And I believe that, and this is based on a lot, you know, especially in the early days, we were focused on referrals. It was one of our first features that we built on top of our deep links. And you could do like, you know, you could do like the most perfect referral program with us. It was like very seamless. You could give credit. People get the personalized install from the person who referred them with their face on it. So it was like a really good, it was a really good product. I mean, it still is and it's used by a lot of our apps. But, and sometimes it works amazing and sometimes it doesn't. And it's, it could be the exact same implementation. And what I've, I've thought a lot about referrals and I've looked a lot into virality. And the way I think it works is, you have to think of getting someone to install an app like a mountain and then getting them to install your app is basically jumping off the mountain. And if someone is at the bottom of the mountain, so they've never heard of your app, they've never, they don't know about your product. If they just get a referral, it's like someone trying to push them off the mountain, but they're at the bottom. Like they can't like push them off the mountain if they're not on top of the mountain. So you need to do a lot of other things to get them to the top of the mountain for the referral to then push them. So in the case of Uber and Dropbox, they built so much brand awareness and they did so much around their brand. So when someone got a Uber link, it wasn't like, oh, I don't know what Uber is. Why should I try this? They knew exactly what Uber was. They just hadn't tried it yet. And the referral like pushed them over the edge. And I think that's just something really important to keep in mind. You can just like build referrals without PR and awareness outside of it. And obviously, the referral itself matters, but referrals in a vacuum, I've never seen them work. So that's one. The other one is uh, when you think of sharing programs and how to, I think it's really important to think where something is going to be shared and that not all channels are created equal. And we've actually done a study across all our, all the different places where something can be shared. You know, the click to install ratio is very different. It's very high, for example, on mobile, and it's very low on something like, obviously, on something like Facebook or Twitter, and people will see it, but they don't get to the app right away. Um, and it's almost like a missed opportunity. So if you are to create sharing, make sure that you create sharing on the right channel. So I wrote like a whole article about this, but don't just put like a hundred channels, focus on the ones that, you know, are, are the best channel to get engagement. 
And the custom share sheets that Apple gives you are great, but they don't allow you to actually choose and prioritize the channel. So I highly recommend for those of you out there who have mobile apps and are considering sharing to actually build your own sharing and, and, and definitely prioritize SMS as your top channel. So such as like some, some tips that I came across that I, people used, seem to usually like because it's not something that they thought about before. Yeah, no, those are some amazing insights and feedback. So, so what's your day-to-day role like at Branch? So I am the head of marketing and community. So um, I now manage, I guess, three different focus teams. One is one that builds awareness through community and through, you know, evangelism. So we build this really amazing mobile growth community. We have people all over the world. We have an ambassador program. And, and it's basically geared more towards all the developers out there. Our, I mean, our products are free. We have paid products, but those are like very much geared towards the larger companies and they're built for marketers on top of our links. Um, and our links are primarily used by developers and PMs. And so, so our community team focuses on that. And I work probably a lot of my like individual contributions are more around that. Like I, I write blog posts, I help build presentations, I go and evangelize, uh, I go to our meetups, I, I speak at events. And then we have a lifecycle team that helps take you know, our customers and educates them about our product. Uh, and then we have a team that focuses and works with the sales team on all those like large accounts and helping them with marketing collateral and education for marketers at larger companies. So that's kind of the, the marketing team. And then I also, as a founder, I think I focus mostly on our culture initiatives, thinking through our, what our values are and how to like do events that are around that. You know, and I started like a social committee. We have a diversity committee. Uh, so I'm, I'm usually involved with those as well. That's really cool. So what's next for Branch and, and how do you see bots, AI or voice fitting into the future of this industry? I think in general, mobile Mobile, mobile is not just going to be phones. Mobile is going to be everything around us. It's going to be watches and cars, glasses, and all these other things. And, and apps are going to not, no longer be, you know, an iPhone, an Android app. They're going to be apps for your car and apps for your connected home. And, and a brand is going to have to think of more than just, you know, I am a brand and I have a mobile app and I have market and I have like email marketing and a Facebook presence. They're going to have to like start existing everywhere. And we're already seeing it with iOS 10. It's really interesting that now there's an app store inside messages. So as a brand, you now can have your app on the app store and your app on the iMessage app store. It's already becoming complicated. And, and bots in itself are becoming almost like their own OSs. So you have to have an app that's for the phone and then an app that works in the in the in a chat app and an app that works with a specific AI, I think it's it's gonna be it's gonna become more and more complicated and it's gonna be harder and harder for like brands to navigate how they can work with all of that. Like I'm gonna have an app and a Slack bot that t- sends people to my app and another bot in WeChat that also sends people to my iMessage app. <laughs> it's just uh, it's just like a really like the eco- the ecosystem is just like kind of going all over the place. And there's going to need to be a way to unify all of this and unify experiences. And I think that's where Branch wants to be when it comes to linking. There's probably going to be other 
management platform that are going to evolve that allows you to create to buy, basically manage your presence all around, you know, the different places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it should be really interesting to see where things go with bots and AI and, and just voice as a whole. And like you're saying, like apps from your car to your house to just wherever, right? So on that yeah. note, are, are there any technologies or spaces you find super interesting right now related to mobile Trying to think. I mean, I, I really like think this new iMessages in iOS 10 is going to be really interesting. And I'm really curious to see how it's going to evolve. Uh, we're already starting to see branch customers building iMessages app uh, and, and looking at deep linking into those. And it, it is really interesting. And then, I mean, obviously, augmented reality, I think it's going to be a very big thing. And it, it was interesting. I think Pokemon Go was like the beginning of that. But I think everything is going to move towards that. And I find it like fascinating. I think in the future, I can see like even five years from now, almost everything we'll, we'll, we'll do would be somewhat augmented. And uh, I think I find it like kind of exciting and really interesting. So so on the note of Pokemon Go and, and iMessage apps, are there any really cool apps or tools or bots or anything like that that you've downloaded or used recently? I'll be honest, most of the new apps I download are games. I'm like a pretty avid gamer. I've been trying, like I'm very addicted. So I've been trying to like kind of uh, lay low. What games have you been uh, playing? I, I try to like not play the the games that I remember like when um, Clash of Clans came out, I was like, I was addicted to that. That was for a while. Clan Royale, I was like super addicted. So then I just had to delete this from my phone. So now I just go back to like very like basic games like threes or something where like I'm not going to like feel this impulse to spend money <laughs> on it because <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for that. I spent a lot of money on mobile games. Cool. So do you have any, you know, uh, recommendations on some great content that you've come across lately, like books, videos, blog posts, anything that you read that kind of stood out or, or saw that stood out? Yeah. On virality, there's this book that I recently read called Contagious uh, by Jonah Berger. And I really like it. Uh, I think it's really, really awesome. It kind of breaks down the principles of virality. And I, when I talk about like virality for mobile apps, I use a lot of content from that book. There's this book that I was recently talking to my team about, and I'm trying to make them read it and making our sales team read it, which is, it's an old book, but it's one of the, I think when it comes to convincing people and when it comes to convincing your early customers to use you and promote you, it's one of those classics. It's, it's a book called, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion by Cialdini. And I, I had, I first read it, I think it was in, in, in uh, my engineering master's in a class. But it basically kind of like the six principles of, of selling. And they really, it really can, they really do work. And uh, I just think it's a great book for any entrepreneur to read, especially in the early days. But even after, because you always have to, you're always selling. As a, as a founder, you're always selling. So... <laughs> That's cool. I'll have to check it out. I have heard really good things about that one. And it's been on my list, but a, key, a bunch of other books keep popping up. So, you know, you only have so much time to read. I can't get to all of them. Yeah, <laughs> but totally. I'll have to I'll have to check it out now that uh, you've spoken so highly about it. Cool. Maybe just to wrap up the episode, do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? I'm going to steal this one from Alex. It's basically, well, I have two. One I'll steal from Alex and one is my own. So the first one is just keep building. So I think it's okay to fail. It's okay to, if you just keep building and keep trying things out, something will basically hit. So, you know, we, we failed a lot before we got to branch and branch is doing great, but we've like launched something that doesn't always work. And we just, if you just keep building 
and you keep like taking everything in and analyze everything, don't become too attached to any ideas, you will get the right thing and you will win. And the other one is more of a, like a personal model. And it's like a two-way thing. I think it's, it's basically, you can always do better. And it, it's like a two-way thing. One is like, you, you should never settle and, and there's always something better you can do. And there's always a way to improve yourself and always strive for that. And I always strive for that. But the second part of that is because you can always do better, there's a point in which you can say, this is good enough. Because you'll never reach perfection. There's always something better that you can do. So there's just going to be a point in which you have to say, this is ready. I'm going to put this out. I'm going to learn. And that's it. So it's almost in a way it keeps pushing me to be better all the time. But in another way, it's, it's liberating. And it's allowing me to say, okay, I've done the best I can this time. I could do better, but that's fine. <laughs> even if I did do better, there would always be even better than that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Those are both uh, two really good sayings uh, and, and things to keep in mind. Mada, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do it without your awesome support, so please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next week, and we hope you enjoy the show.